The Other Side podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Welcome and thank you all for joining us here for another edition of In Black and White, which is part of the Columbus Dispatch. Part of this series is an effort to create dialogue and conversations around race and race relations within um, the Columbus metropolitan area. Today, we are joined by our guests, Dr. Drexler James, Dr. Karen Prowl-Sears, and Marcellus Braxton, who have previously written for the Columbus Dispatch. And one of the reasons we're having this conversation is regarding um, the shooting of Micaiah Bryant, who was recently killed um, by a Columbus police officer. And one of the discourses that we've been raising um, is the justification for the police officer's shooting and killing of Micaiah Bryant. But more so, Marcellus Braxton wrote a phenomenal op-ed piece titled, What if Micaiah Bryant had been a 16-year-old white girl? And part of his discussion um, in his op-ed was the term that we're going to use and explore throughout this conversation is the adultification of Black youth. And it's a fascinating term that has been part of the academy, but now it's more so floating within the general public. So we want to get more nuanced definitions of understanding this. And so I want to ask our esteemed panelists and guests, Dr. Jackson James, who is a psychologist in the area of psychology um, at Denison University, uh, Dr. Karen Paul Sears, who is also at Denison University in anthropology sociology and Marcellus Braxton at Capital University, um, Dean of Students at the Law School. Thank you all for joining us here, so we really appreciate you being a part of this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So Marcellus, could you please, um, you know, the op-ed that you wrote for the Columbus Dispatch, you know, if Micaiah Bryan had been a 16-year-old white girl, what inspired you and what was the motivation behind that op-ed piece? And then also making use of the term adultification and a brief explanation of what that term means. Yeah, well, um, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Um, I, I think the reason why I wrote it was, you know, just thinking about the title, what if she had been white? And just thinking about how we treat people differently based on race here. And I think there's a combination of things. So I think it all kind of comes together. So I, I talked about perception of dangerousness. So when we think about black and white, we know that there's a perception of dangerousness that exists, whether you're white or black, and that's whether you're armed or not armed. So if you're white and armed, you're treated differently than if you're black and armed. And then I started thinking, okay, what do we think for black women? And I use black women really intentionally here because Makaya was not a black woman, she was a black girl, but oftentimes she was treated as a black woman. But even when you're thinking about black women, we know that of when we think of all women, black women face the highest risk of being killed by the police as well. I think it's something like black women make up about 20% of the women who are fatally shot by the police and about almost 30% of armed killings since 2015. But then it made me think, people are saying young uh, black woman or black woman, but Magai was a black girl. And so it made me start thinking, how do we treat black girls in society? And we have so, we have so much research that shows that we treat black girls as if they need less nurturing and they need less protection. They need to be supported less and comfort less and that they're more independent. And so what often happens is that this perception of when you see a black girl is very different than when you see a white girl. Oftentimes when people see a white girl, they think, oh, we need to save her. And when they see a black girl, they think, oh, this is a person who we is independent or is an adult or doesn't need nurturing. So we treat a white girl as a victim, but we treat a black girl as a target. And 
I wanted to write about this because I think we have all these things that are coming together that are influencing what happened in the situation. Uh, and I think that's why I originally started writing. And we can talk more about that later on, but that's the inspiration for it. No, that is really fascinating. I'm glad we can actually do, um, um, you gave us a brief, ex a brief explanation of what it means, but also how it nuances, like you said, um, the, the terminology between young woman versus girl. Um, and how that slippage, you know, happens a lot of times when we refer to black youth. Um, Dr. Sears, you know, what, you know, as, as a black woman in the academy and someone who's done a lot of this work, it's, it's in, in around black girls and black women. Um, that term floats around in, in the work that you do. You know, um, help us to nuance it a little more. What, what, that, what it means sociologically? Thank you for asking. Thank you for asking that. I think one of the things that comes to mind when I heard about Micaiah's murder, that lethal force was used to quell a child, I want us to bring our attention to that Micaiah was a child. And the question I asked was what ideologies, what belief systems make possible the choice of lethal force to be used against a child? And it brings me to a discussion about ideologies, belief systems, belief systems about human worth, and discussions about how worth becomes tied to race in our society and how worth becomes tied to gender. And when gender and race worth ideas are applicable, how they manifested in the choice to use lethal force against Micaiah. So one of the best ways I can describe is thinking about our assumptions as a culture about how people are valued based upon this thing called race that we made up, right? This ideology system that says, based upon skin color, hair texture, nose shape and lip shape, we determine human value. And when we talk about um, white supremacist ideology, that belief system says that people's worth, human worth, is tied to their phenotype alleged differences among humans. Differences that we know are not significant biological differences at all. They are, represent less than 1% of our genetic material is what I'm talking about, less than 1%, but that we tie ideas about worth. So in that situation, I asked myself, and, I, and, and, and Marcellus's column rings so true in the question, I seek to answer the question, how, what would happen if the child was a child whose life we value differently? A, a, the, if the target was actually seen as a child. And in our idea system, it just so happens that there are these, these um, ideologies that devalue humans based upon skin color. And the devaluing differs, the, the, the content of the belief system, the content of the devaluing differs depending on the target. So in the case of black women, many of the tropes we've heard, the ideal, that belief system around black women's value as human is that black women are other human less human, subhuman. And we know that from the historic tropes of black womanhood we've seen, we've seen featured in popular entertainment. Um, Marlon Riggs in, in the Ethnic Notion series by California Newsreel did an amazing job talking about these tropes. Carolyn West talks about these tropes in her article about Mammy, Sapphire, and Jezebel. And what they represent is 
is ex an examination culturally of, of what the meaning systems have been in our culture around Black women and who they are. And I think one of the things that's helpful is, and Matt, we, we often can relate to Greek mythology, these archetypes of humanity that we know are not true, you know, uh, Adonis, um, uh, you know, these super Her Herculean idea, Her Hercules. We have notions about these mythology in Greek life, but we don't think about mythology when we're talking about American mythology. So we're going to talk about Black women as a mythology around Black women's roles and Black women's values in our society, uh, their meaning. And the tropes that have been used in our culture have been Black women as aggressive, dangerous, angry, and loud. And we see these not only in the things that are written about Black women's bodies historically, Venus Hottentot, right? We all have heard about uh, people coming from far and near to examine this other human specimen. specimen. That, we, that the same ideology system that said that Venus Hottentot was a thing to be observed um, historically, that we see the very same things in popular culture. If you look at the, the sitcoms from the 70s and Good Times, Good Times was the version of Black women written from, from a non-Black woman's perspective, right? Eye-rolling, angry, loud, uh, one-dimensional persons. Now, we know that those kinds of human emotions range across species, right? That you are, people are angry sometimes, they're loud sometimes, they're happy sometimes, they're aggressive sometimes. But when the range of human expressions becomes limited to a simplified number of tropes, one or two ideas about black womanhood, that ideology is what operates when we're able to see a child, right? Like Micaiah as an aggressive, angry, dangerous, violent woman. We know that these tropes pervade television, they pervade music, and they also encounter, they also shape our experiences across institutions, right? So, so the, 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 the trope of Black women being aggressive and angry finds itself in discussions and in the narratives of evaluations for college students. We find the same kinds of messages in the narratives of performance evaluations for Black women, and even how they're described in incident reports when they have police interaction. So in that instance, in which the decision was made to use violent force against a child, the idea system is what I want us to spend time talking about, because oftentimes we're focused on individual actors, like the individual officer, when in fact, think about, I think it's important to think about police officers as members of organizations and the ideology, the normative system of an organization and what the idea system might say, the content of that idea system with regard to black women. So if the idea system says that black women are angry, dangerous, and savage-like, and that messagery, message comes from the conversations about black women in the narratives, from television programs, from the kinds of ways that they are featured even in contemporary programs, that reality, things that are not real, May, may appear to be real um, in those situations. So that I, the example I use is if you get, I'm from Connecticut, and often you'll call the police if you see a big brown bear. And very rarely do people call the police and say, there is a teenage bear in my backyard. They say there's a bear in my backyard, or there's a, a teenage, you never heard people say that, I report the sighting of a teenage lion, right? Is a lion. Because the lethality of a bear and a lion doesn't, uh, it does, isn't, does it, we don't regard age or you know there's not less danger because they're small or more danger because they're big they're the essence of the entity of bear is dangerous and if you apply that same notion of savage animalry to a black woman makaya becomes a bear a, a black woman becomes analogous to a bear 
So what I see is a, a danger, a present and a, a ever-present danger. And what do you do when you see a black bear? You pull in the kinetic, you pull out your rifle and you shoot the bear with a tranquilizer. You don't kill a bear because we value animals, but you shoot the bear with a tranquilizer gun. So I think about an idea system that allows that, that split second decision making. There's a danger. And that cultural messaging about the, the lethality of black women connects to how black girls, sometimes they lose their lives like Micaiah did in that instance. Other times they lose other opportunities. If that imagery, that ideology operates in an academic setting, they are aggressive, they're uh, intimidating, they're threatening. They might not be suited for promotion. If you're in another setting, um, it might be something service at, at Target that you might make someone feel intimidated because you asked why you're asking for four forms of ID. That the notion that you're threatening might result in a phone call to the police. Um, if you're talking about children in the public school, black girls are several times as likely. Hundreds of one of the, the government reports show, suggested how significant what the differences are with regard to rates of detention, suspension, expulsion for compared for black girls and white girls. One piece of data in Massachusetts showed that there were eight black women suspended, black girls suspended for a half of a white girl in the diagram. You know, the, the diagrams have the little, the, the, the picture of a dress to represent girls. And in this late, latest data, there wasn't even an entire dress that could represent the inequity with regard to differences in, in detention, expulsion, and um, suspension for girls in this Massachusetts town with regard to public education documents. So so I, I want us to, to think about the idea systems and realize that they do danger damage across institutions and in some instances, it ends up in people dying like it did when Micaiah Bryant um, lost her life um, at the ripe age of 15 years old. Yeah. Um, no, this is really great. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I thought about it when you were saying how when the police officer approaches or comes to the scene once he's called, he doesn't see Micaiah Bryant um, engaged in a dialogue or confrontation with other young girls. It's not like a, a verbal confrontation. It's actually within the middle of a fight. So everything you're saying is the one dimensional, um, when he shows up, he's in the midst of actually see, witnessing what he perceives, um, probably the ideology that we, you just referred to as an aggressive, black, loud, young woman engaged in the fight. I need to do what I need to deem necessary to prevent something happening further. So he doesn't come in at the beginning or whatever happened prior to that, it's already uh, something already engaged happening. And I want to bring in Dr. James to talk about that, you know, the psychology around that, you know, the psychology around adultification. You know, um, what does that mean, you know, um, for black youth when they're engaged in, you know, these public um, spaces and, and, and interacting with the legal system? Thank you. I'll add this add to what Karen and Marcellus have said um, about one black mysticism and also the adultification bias. So I think about some of the research my colleagues have done showing stereotyping, for example, of Black children. Um, white people are more likely to stereotype Black children negatively, even more so than white adults. So talking to this idea of Black children being seen as adult um, from the perspective of white people. Um, and through my discussions, I also realized that there is no really demarcation between stereotypes about a Black adult um, and stereotypes about Black children. Black children, just cognitively as seen in a similar way, um, as Black adults. Um, and then thinking about this racial genetic essences, Karen mentioned essences, and the essence of Blackness is this idea of like criminality and like brute force. So coming here with a form of dehumanization of Black people, 
label as superhumanization. So this idea of black, black mysticism and black strength, you know, we can run really quickly, we can lift heavy weights. You know, some work I've shown even among medical professionals saying black people have thicker skin and smaller brains than white people. Um, and this like ideologies and how they permeate just like culturally. Um, so when you put all this together, you know, this ideas of this like black genetic essences with this adultification and the superhumanization, we see what's happening here with the interaction um, the police officer with Makaya. So you're seeing here this strong, and that's with the superhumanization here, this strong black woman with the adultification bias um, who is, again, more likely to be criminal and dangerous going with this like pervasive negative stereotypes about black people. So we have here simultaneous and I guess exacerbating ideologies about blackness broad, specifically on this like race more broadly um, that I argue influence that interaction. Um, and it's important to think about, yes, yeah, so as Marcel said, what would have happened if the interaction if Makaya was a white girl? And absent this idea of this like superhumanization of black people, absent the adultification bias, but more importantly here, how people distinguish between the innocence of white children um, and not black children, I think would influence the interaction. I think we can all agree very differently. Um, perhaps the intervention strategies would be less lethal, um, less extreme. Yeah. No, can, I, can I add to that, please? Mm -hmm. That's such a perfect, one of the best ways to, 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 to practice teaching about how there are different ideologies of, of, of human value. I refer to this as the, 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 the tropes about black women as ideologies of dehumanization, right? Ideologies of dehumanization. They are applied to black men as well. I think one of the great ways to, to think about how, what would happen if this was, um, these were white children fighting is to, to, to substitute words. I, I live in a suburban community and, and, and children fight sometimes. And I've witnessed children fighting with lacrosse sticks, children fight with hockey sticks, children fight with soccer balls. So as a, as a, as a mom of a, of a child who's involved in competitive uh, athletic programs, I've witnessed fighting. And sometimes it's verbal fighting and sometimes it's physical fighting. And imagine seeing two young people in the cul-de-sac having a fight. And imagine the police pulling up to a neighborhood in, in, in Galena or a neighborhood in Upper Albany and deciding in the space of two minutes to use lethal force to quell the argument, the altercation. Can you imagine for a second the headline the next day? Police officer shoots Chase Smith in Dublin, Ohio. Police officer shoots six 15-year-old Brianna, 15-year-old Megan Smith uh, in Olentangy in the midst of a fight with uh, in, in the cul-de-sac. Imagine the outrage, even saying it, we have an affective difference in our, in our response to that because we are accustomed to not hearing or saying that thing. Right? And part of what happens in ide with different ideologies of human value, um, they, they motivate our behavior differently. We, we assess them differently. One of the examples I give to this, to illustrate this, is the, uh, the Kavanaugh Supreme Court trials, in which we saw uh, Supreme Court uh, nominee Kavanaugh on camera 
flailing and crying and really emotionally intense as he talked about his experience as a college student. And we were able to imagine him in this extended boyhood, a man well in his years. We were able to, 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 to understand and, and have empathy for him, um, for some of us were, um, for potential uh, indiscretions. But there's this, this, we call this extended boyhood, that white males are, are given something called extended boyhood. So we can imagine a 57-year-old person not understanding that talking to the Russians about selling information might not be a good idea, because he doesn't know a lot about politics, right? And it's extend, an extended boyhood that grants immunity from, from standards and expectation. Um, supreme, ideologies of human value make us do strange things. We make grown, grown men, boys in our imagination, and we make little girls women. Right? So, so the, it's the inverse, right? What the, the inverse of the norm occurs when these ideologies are at reign. So we can imagine Judge Supreme, now Justice Kavanaugh, as a teenage boy easily. And even so much that we're able to excuse his emotional outbursts during the testimony because we understood it was passionate. Um, you know, everybody drinks beer, right? We, we can imagine him in his frat boy stage and we excuse that behavior, some of us, but we cannot grant that same, we the idea that we extend childhood to the adults of a certain background, but abbreviate and exempt from childhood other, other humans in itself is problematic that we need to have that conversation. So it is not simply the eradication, the exemption that blackness gives to childhood, right? Trayvon Martin was exempt from childhood right, when he was assassinated. Micaiah was exempt from childhood, right? We can go, we can give several examples of people exempt from childhood. Um, we, we don't have examples of, we saw, we saw mass murderers taken gently into the police car, Dylan Roof, um, unscathed in his arrest. We imagine him in his boyhood. We, we saw that the, the executioner in the Black Lives Matter protests um, talk about how he was having a the executioner Atlanta had a bad day. We imagine their humanity, but yet we exempt others from humanity um, that do that, that that are black, that black children get exempt from humanity, and when other groups get extended childhood and 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 connection to humanity uh, in ways that are not uh, um, equal, not optimal, and not equitable. Yeah, and that's how Marcella, if you ended um, your your op-ed, you know, with the value, how we value human life. Um, and particularly for you know black youth, um, could you explain a little more about you know, the value of that? How do we put a human value to black youth? Um, I think Dr. Fauci is, and you know Dr. James brings a very valid points also too because you know we reimagine the language, um, the location, even itself. You know, if it had been Dublin or Olentangy, you know, um, we would it would be a different conversation. But the fact that police officer knew he was going into a certain neighborhood which automatically creates a certain ideology of, I have to prepare myself mentally, you know, what's going to happen in this community. Could you expand upon that? And, and, and from a legal perspective, but not legally. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I think that's a really important distinction because oftentimes people want to lean on the law or what they perceive the law to be. And oftentimes people will say, well, no, at least someone was legally justified in doing so. Um, and often what that means is it's legally sufficient and sufficient means enough or adequate. And so that, that becomes a fundamental problem because oftentimes people can lean in and say, well, well, legally I was able to do something. And so oftentimes what we're doing is talking about how the law is currently established, but that doesn't talk about what we morally ought to do. It doesn't talk about what we morally need to do. 
It doesn't talk about what we need to do as a community. It doesn't talk about these biases in the community. It doesn't talk about what the law should be. It doesn't talk about any deficiencies in the law. All it says is, hey, the law is this. I'm allowed to get away with this. I'm allowed to do this. And so I think how it relates is that we get so caught up when we talk about the law, we start talking about perfection. When it comes to particularly Black children, it's perfection. And it says, were they perfect? Did they do everything right? Did they do a single thing wrong? Were they respectable? But that's ultimately not the point. The point is that we have this problem here when we talk about policing. And instead, when we say, rather than think the police are supposed to preserve life, we present this idea that you have to be perfect, act perfect, show complete deference, submit, or else the police are justified or legally justified, or more importantly, the same should I say, they can find legal justification in, kill you, in, in killing you or harming you. And instead, what we need to ask, instead of worrying about, oh, is there legal justification? What we have to say is, did the police do everything possible in their power to not kill a person, to not harm a person? And I think it's really important when we talk about legal justification, it means that one is able to do so, but it doesn't mean that one always does so. We've seen so many times where police were able to apprehend white murderers without shooting them, to show restraint um, when we think about the riots in the Capitol. Or we've seen de-escalation all the time when we see there are white people holding weapons or pointing weapons or using weapons all the time. You can Google that and be able to see that or even using the weapon right in front of you. Um, and so it's clear to me that there's some differences here. And when you hide behind the wall, you're not really actually having that conversation to me. And so I, I just want to be clear about this. I'm not saying, oh, because uh, I'm not saying, oh, I'm not asking for the police to kill more people. What I'm saying is that we shouldn't be hiding behind the law to justify the killing of more people. We shouldn't be thinking, how do you kill more people? No, we shouldn't be killing anyone. The police shouldn't be killing anyone. The point is to preserve life, not to have legal justification for taking lives. Mm -hmm. So with that, and, and I know we all are familiar or aware of, you know, the, the current, um, the from the police monster that's bullying the ether, what they're looking to do in Columbus. And also they're looking to hire a new police chief in Columbus as well. So that's also in the mayor's and um, task force. Um, the community board is another aspect that they're adding to the two. Um, all these all, all these preventable measures, um, you think uh, a way of reshaping how we think of Columbus and policing. Um, and I don't know if you all are aware, but you know, Columbus has been ranked second in the nation around the killing of black youth um, and teens. So is, is, so what's, so is, is there an overarching problem that we need to address that's also on the table? And can these um, preventable, preventable, preventable measures, such as defunding the police or the community, um, um, the community board for police officers that they want to implement, and the new police chief who will come in have to inherit um, these, these situations and problems? Dr. Drexler, James, you know, psychologically, what's going on here? Well, I mean, it, how can someone step into that role? Discussing systems and individuals. So we're like nested. You have individuals nested within systems. And on the one hand, it seems most of the issues in the world, remedies for the concerns are to change individuals. So we change the figurehead, but we don't change the structures. We don't change the systems. We don't reimagine the ideologies. Um, and in the same way that we construct those ideologies and those mysticisms about blackness, we can reconstruct it, deconstruct it, like to say, differently constructed also. Um, so it's the extent to which the new police chief will 
cause and maintain a shift in the police in Columbus. So he's talking about Columbus specifically. He's going to talk about culturally what that looks like. How do you think about their interactions um, with non-white and minoritized individuals so across race here, um, including other groups? So thinking about that, but I don't know if the new police chief will be empowered, even have the training necessary to reimagine the police institution in Columbus. Um, so I think that's something that we need to invest time and money into. Um, I'm not hoping that a single individual can reshape a centuries-old institution of policing. <laughs> I, I love I, that you said that, like centuries old policing, because mm-hmm. <laughs> we can change, because all we're doing is actually just replacing someone within a system that's already been implemented, you know, the structural um, things that are already in play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that Kelsey, if you wanted to jump in and say something. You know, I do have to jump in. I, I, I enjoy this conversation so much because there's this, this, this is not a simple answer. So it does require this holistic approach. And I, I bring us bring us back to my original point about thinking about police's policing as part of an institution, policing institution, policing organizations. So rather than focusing on these individual actors, and in the same way that we look across our society and look to create um, what I call EO2 organizations, right? Equity, optimizing organizations, right? If you cite me, make sure it's Powell Sears 2021, EO2 organizations, right? So that what I, in a paper that's is coming forth shortly, I'm talking about the fact that part of this process of, of helping to cultivate equity-oriented organizations is, may include the things we describe as anti-racist practice, but it includes many things. Um, so think about anti-racist practices as being processes, systems, um, um, pathways to moving us toward becoming equity-oriented organizations. So there's several things, right? Our policies, our practices, our, 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 uh, our, our relational experiences. Um, but specifically with regard to policing, it is the, the question we have to ask is, what are the idea systems that allow for the, the kind of outcome, racial disparities in outcomes that we observe. We have the data that tell us about the inequities. We know that black women are almost twice as likely to be incarcerated compared to white women for the same crimes. We know that, we have that data. We see the disparities um, with a prison to school pipeline. We see the disparities with regard to expulsion, suspension, and, and, uh, and, and detention for, for black women. So with regard to policing, what has to happen for policing institutions, organizations to become equity-oriented, EO2 organizations. Um, one of, there are many things that have to happen for that to happen, but among them, among the first stage in order for us to have actual change, for, for us to, to, to transform organizations, one of the first elements in moving in that direction requires transparent excavation, exploration, and declaration. What is the problem? What are we thinking? What are the belief systems? So part of my concern about um, movements that move us away from knowing, so for example, anti-critical race theory moments are very dangerous because they suggest that a tool, it is like banning shovels when you don't want to have a grave, when you're concerned about the grave being robbed, right? They're they're robbing graves and my decision is to, to ban shovels, right? 
Critical race theory is a tool that's used to dissect and excavate information, right? To, uh, to make clear to us disparities, racial disparities in outcomes that are concrete. Things like differences in rates of incarceration, things like differences in rates of, of, of suspension detention, things like differences in, in rates of the choice of using lethal force to quell altercations. We have that data. So the question is, what are the factors that allow for, the idea systems that allow for those disparities? Can we talk about those idea systems specifically in policing organizations? And how might we replace those idea systems? And the psychologist amongst us know, among us knows very well that you cannot replace a behavior, right? With a negative punishment doesn't replace behavior. Only affirming uh, the behavior that is desired creates new behaviors. There's an entire psychological theory around this. So if we seek to create new behaviors, we have to first identify the behaviors that are problematic, right? And, and, and deter those behaviors, but we have to replace them with the behaviors that we wish to see, right? Those equity, this EO2, the, the equity-oriented behaviors, the things that people are calling now anti-racist practice. We do that in our, what are our practices, our surveillance practices as police officers? How are we training uh, police, uh, what are, what, how are we replacing the idea systems that people have in organizations with new idea systems? Policing organizations are not select in this problem. They just, it just happens to be the place where people can lose their lives. But in other spaces, like academia, people lose their livelihood around these ideology systems. So I want us to connect policing organizations uh, among the structures that Dr. James talks about that need transforming. And the first step to train, I have several steps to moving us toward an EO2 organizations, but the first of those are again, transparent excavation, like you're digging something up, exploration and declaration, which means we what's the problem? Who's the problem? How's the problem? When's the problem? Where's the problem? Before we can eradicate the problem. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And Dr. Um, I mean, the, I'll call you Dr. Braxton. See, look, that that is a foretelling and prophecy in your next career. Um, tying this all up, you know, the legal system. You know, and I always point towards the, ju the judicial system, the legal system. You know how that implement uh, impl impl implicitly um, targets you know black youth um, and black persons and incarcerates and then these carceral bodies that we continue to find is is. is Help us here in that area. <laughs> Tie that up in a bowl for us if you can. <laughs> well, uh, we probably need hours and hours there, but I think um, I think maybe speaking to what was brought up about critical race theory can actually help us understand where all this is happening when we understand the law. Because I think we see it more and more in the public, this discussion of critical race theory coming up. But the problem is people don't really understand what critical race theory is. But once you understand it, now we can actually be able to have these conversations and tie up everything you're talking about. And so oftentimes what's happening is we're talking about critical race theory as just a stand-in for anything related to race. So they're just saying, oh, it relates to race, that's critical race theory. But that, that relates to a lot of problem, right? Because oftentimes when people are forced to discuss race, now we have to talk about how socially constructed and socially constructed to oppress and discriminate. And then we have to talk about things like white supremacy, which were mentioned. And oftentimes people want to think of white supremacy as like, oh, we're talking about the Klan or we're talking about neo-Nazis. But really what we're talking about with white supremacy is we're talking about these socioeconomic or political systems where there's a structural advantage, these privileges over other ethnic groups on a collective and individual level. And so 
what you have here is the reason why it's difficult to talk about is because there's a tendency for some people who are white to not want to talk about racism because there's a reliance on saying, I got where I am based on hard work or effort or what have you. And when you start talking about racism, now you have to dismiss some of these things. And now you have to start talking about the law, which is where critical race theory comes in. Because critical race theory is based, if you know, look at actual critical race theory, it's not just anyone who talks about race. They're often law professors, to be honest, because they often talk about race and racism and power and law. And so that's where it becomes scary, because now critical race theory is saying we have to talk about all, all these things are intertwined. And we have to talk about our laws and our legal systems that people hold on to. And we have to say they weren't constructed for equity. They were constructed often to further what we talk about as white supremacy. And they weren't meant to treat people fairly. And so now what you have to do is you have to drop these ideas that laws are race neutral because we often act like that. And that's where it kind of ties it all together. We also like to think, hey, as the law is race neutral, it doesn't mention law, therefore it's race neutral, but it's not. What we have to do, and that's what critical race theory is challenging to do, is think about, okay, we have this law in place, but let's think about the social and political structure that was formed and maintained. This wasn't an accident. We often like to think, oh, our laws just happen to be that way, but it's not. And they want to think about, oh, now critical race theory is what's doing the indoctrination, meaning that you're just accepting it without being critical of it. But no, that's not actually what's happening. What's happening is we have a system that's being internalized from the time people are two, three, four years old. And so they're meant to think about this, they're eternalizing and they're normalizing what we know as white supremacy and they're accepting that uncritically. So now when we start thinking about the laws and we want people to think about that critically, now people are afraid of that. So I think that ties everything in together from a legal perspective, because now we're asking people, hey, we need you to think about the laws, not in terms of things that you just accepted uncritically, but you have to think about it critically. You have to think about the role that race played when we think about all these things. So I hope that tied together. We could talk for about three more hours, but that's my short two-minute version about why that's so important. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. You know, we could go on and on and on, but unfortunately, we will have to wrap up for the sake of time. This conversation, we could do a part two of this, because I think it's critically important to continue these conversations, because, like you said, now that we have critical race theory on the table by our our, our political system, which is attacking it, um, 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 how are these going to be affected moving forward? How are we going to be considering race moving forward? Um, the fact that, you know, Tim Scott, the representative from South Carolina, said that um, Americans are not <laughs> racist. Um, we can have a conversation about that as well uh, and, and see the implications of what, why critical race theory is very necessary and important for this dialogue. But today, we, just, we really want to just hone in on Micaiah Bryant. Um, the shooting and killing of the young woman, and how race played a significant and critical part of that, but also how adultification and the superhumanization of Black persons throughout the ideology of race um, um, would play a huge part in, in, in her death. Um, and so just tying up in a very brief summary, next steps. What do you think can possibly happen, you know, for us to consider um, for Black youth in Columbus or throughout our country. Um, we have these conversations, we, we hear about these conversations parents have with their kids. You know, these are the things you do when you interact with the police. These are the things you don't do, you know, how to behave. And, and I think Marcel and Karen, you all brought these up. Um, um, black youth are, are taught at a very young age of how to behave um, in a system that is structurally uh, 
are marginalized and continues to oppress them in ways that it doesn't do their white counterparts. Dr. Sears, yes. I want to say something which is so important, and this is, I appreciate this panel so much because the, the breadth of, of talent and expertise is, is enriching me, so thank you for calling us together. I think that it's really important to realize that the tropes we're talking about, these archetypes, these ideologies of human value, are not logical. They're not rational, right? So that that the what holding ideologies about particular groups of people that essentialize them, that say complex humans only do four things, anger, violence, savagery, and aggression, right? That is, we know that humans are more complex than that. But but what happens with these ideologies that we're able we 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 render we render ourselves um, less than um, I want to I don't want to use the D word or the S word but less than sharp right because we, rather than relying on our faculties to process and think through the human that we engage we rely on the schema right and we're going to go to the psychologist that that. Now, the, the function of categories in your head, the schema was to make what well, is efficient, right? You don't have to think a lot. You just see black person dangerous. And people often confuse schema, the fact that everybody stereotypes. I've heard people say everybody uses categories. It's just efficient. It's, it's how we're, it's evolutionary. The, the meaning that is applied, that's the content, the meaning behind the categories is not evolutionary. It is absolutely socially constructed. So the so the the idea that people automatically categorize as a function of efficiency is a physiological truth. But the information that is used to fuel and inform those categories is a function of our social experiences, our cultural learning. And that is really important because it renders people's judgment illogical. So that even though you're looking at a professor, for example, and I'll give you an example of how using these tropes of black womanhood make people make really unsmart decisions in interactions with other people. So for example, if you are relying on the trope of black womanhood that says black women are angry and aggressive because perhaps you saw good times and you used to hear Walona um, cursing out Booker. I know I'm dating myself, but I'm thinking back to the to the sitcoms of the, the 80s where, where black women were, were rendered into our ima creative imagination from white writers. And they were often rolling their eyes and sucking their teeth and wagging their heads. And even on the new um, reality series, I see those also scripted in a similar way that people, most people don't know anyone who behaves the way some of the leading uh, reality shows por portray black women. However, if you rely on those things, it makes you do logical things. So the idea that you can actually perform your way out of being a, having a trope applied to you is is misinformed. You cannot enunciate your way out of a trope. You cannot wear pearls to get yourself out of a trope. You cannot polite your way out of a trope because I've tried to, I wear pearls all the time. Yet even on, and I'll give you an example that, that white supremacist ideology that, that allows you to envision black women as less valuable makes you make really not smart decisions. Well, it would have, I'll give it one, I'm a member of my homeowners association. I'm actually the vice president. And last month, the I've been here for over a decade. I'm one of the few people who has who has been here since over the last decade. And I had the the, the president who was newer to this neighborhood look at me on a Zoom and say to me, because I close my eyes when I process, and, and say to me, I see you rolling your eyes. Go ahead, roll your eyes. I'll wait until you're done. I'll wait. And I did what any academic would do when someone, when a, as a professor, when someone says, keep rolling your eyes, I said, I understand why you're using that trope, 
then you should do some reflection and think about why you're using that trope as well. Now, I'm sure that wasn't what she expected because I found it fascinating that she, I thought, who rolls their eyes anymore? I heard, I haven't heard that since middle school. And then I thought, oh, she's learned about black women from television. Maybe she saw one of the last housewife series or she saw uh, JJ and Wilona in the seventies. Perhaps she doesn't, many people do not live Many white people in America do not live in places where black people live. So much of how they learn about black womanhood is through these creative spaces, television, videos, and uh, narratives that, uh, in the community about black women's experiences. That's illogical to, to talk to an adult woman and tell her to not roll her eyes. It's actually fascinating to me. But I thought, I understand where you got that from. It's intellectually lazy. Right? It would require processing to think about the person you're talking to, what they like, what they don't like, where they've been, what their vision for the world, that's complex. But the schema don't make you have to do that. The categories in your head for black women allow you to refer to this very intellectually lazy trope and say, black woman, eye roller, aggressive, angry. And that's what happens. That's expedient and it's efficient. And, 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 that's, and I can tell you how, it how you get the, the material for that the information for that culturally. And Drexel can tell you what happens psychologically when you activate that schema. Um, so so, so in terms of policing, let's talk about the, the outcomes. Let's talk about you know, how is it that when, when ideologies of human value actually devalue entire segments of our population based on race, critical race theory simply is a tool that asks the question, how does race as an ideology, shape outcomes, experiences, practices, and processes. And it started by looking at law and the legal documents and how the legal documents themselves manifest race uh, in terms of practice. But we also use that tool to look at the, the, the framework of race as it applies in academia, as it applies in just criminal justice systems in general, as it applies in corporate spaces, um, and, and, and simply also policing. It is a tool to ask the question, how might race affect practices, processes, and outcomes? And if we don't like the outcomes, how might we go about changing the idea system that gird them in the first place? And that again requires truth telling. There's a reason that truth and reconciliation committees exist because you cannot transform an organization, be it a country or cultural organization without first telling the truth, asking questions, what is happening and who is it happening to? Yeah. And, and and telling me that we cannot use a framework to ask the question is like going to the park or the zoo with a blindfold on. Right. You know, you're there, but you can't see nothing. Right. So so I'm just saying if we wish to transform, we have to first be committed to a transparent excavation, exploration and declaration of the problem in yeah. policing organizations today. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is really great. Um, we, you know, we have to wrap it up very, very soon. So Marcellus and Director, any final words before we um, depart? Quickly on my end, I just think we, we, we always want to end the conversation thinking about what we can practically do um, from a legal standpoint, political standpoint. And I think it's really important. Um, you brought this idea of reform really thinking about. And I think the focus on reform when we think about policing in particular is kind of a problem because oftentimes it's just reallocation of funds within a system that's problematic without solving that issue. So I really think that as we're thinking about how we can honor Makaya, and I think that's really what we need to do. That's why we're having this conversation. We have to invent, reinvent how we handle conflict. And we have to be honest about the role that policing plays. I think it's really important to note 
anyone listening, anyone thinking about this, in rich neighborhoods, in neighborhoods that have money, you don't see this kind of policing. You don't see this kind of over-policing. So what they're doing is admitting that this kind of policing isn't always needed or needed at all. So I think what we need to do is answer just a couple of questions. We have to say, if there's a problem that comes up, are police needed to solve this problem? Could someone else solve this problem? Do we have the same expectations of police officers that we do of social workers, counselors, mental health professionals? Is having a gun necessary in this circumstance? And also, when we're thinking about, quote unquote, reform, is changing people actually going to change behavior, policies, or structures? So if we want to honor Mahaya, these are the things that we have to think about. We have to think about and reinventing what policing looks like and if policing is even necessary. So I think that's kind of how I would like to wrap up. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. James, anything? Yes, I'd also like to just add this, this ongoing discussions about dehumanization to humanization. And I think we need more discussions about racial essences and how people think about race and racial categories. But in this discussion, too, it reminds me of some of the work I have done in my graduate advisor, Courtney Bonham, on racialized spaces and how physical spaces can become imbued with racial meaning and perhaps thinking about how the physical space itself might have exacerbated those negative evaluations of Makaya. So more than this engaged discussions about race, but also physical space in shaping those um, racist perceptions of Black people broadly uh, on Black children specifically. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you all. Wow, what a powerful discussion. I appreciate each and every one of you for taking the time to talk about this and, you know, as we move forward. Uh, hopefully there is a resolve. Hopefully there's more conversations we will be having and we can bring you all back again for a part two of this dialogue. Uh, and personally, in person and in a larger platform. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So thank you all. I really appreciate your time. Um, Dr. James, I'm waiting for your op-ed. Yeah, I'm calling you out here live. That sounds so much. Dr. Sanchez, thank you for your contributions you've written for us before. And Dr. Bra I mean, I keep wanting to call you Dr. Braxton. <laughs> but um, Marcellus Braxton, please, you know, you, you, you know you have now uh, open, uh, open door policy with us to write anytime you want. So thank you all again. Um, and thank you all for joining here on the other side. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. My thank pleasure. You. It was thank an you. awesome discussion. You guys did a great job as usual. And for everyone else out there, please consider supporting local journalism by becoming a subscriber. And be sure to check back regularly for our next installment in the Black and White podcast series. So until next time, try to see things from the other side. Thanks. Thanks.